Are you Talosian? No. Human. But a permanent resident. Don't you recognize me? What's happened to him? Who are you? I'm an old friend of Captain Christopher Pike. Is, is Chris, is he coming back as well? Are you saying Captain Pike and Spock have both been here before? Well, in some ways, Captain Pike never left. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton re-watching Cam's favorite season three episode of Discovery on a loop, Sukal. Oh, I thought you were just going to say all of them. They're all my favorites, Tyler. <laughs> Incoming transmission. Hey, so this is Tyler and Cam. We're interrupting the usual subspace broadcast before we dive into uh, this week's episode. Uh, of course... We had San Diego Comic-Con over this past weekend, and we wanted to be sure that we shared some of our thoughts before, you know, the news kind of, you know, became stale or what have you. So look, if you don't want to be spoiled about anything coming out in, say, the Star Trek marketing department or, you know, stuff that's being widely reported right now, uh, skip ahead. Cam, do you think maybe you could kind of do a, a timestamp for our wonderful listeners in, like, the notes of the episodes just so they can know where to skip right ahead to? Does that work for you? Definitely check the notes on your phone, and I will give the indicator as to where to jump back into the conversation. Excellent. Okay, so why don't we kick it off with this, the uh, Star Trek Picard Season 3 teaser. It is just a lot of uh, beauty shots of the returning cast members. Um, well, I guess there's only three returning cast members, Cam, uh, <laughs> and everything else, it's just uh, the TNG crew. I, I, a couple things to point out, you know, uh, we have some folks that are in Starfleet uniforms that you may not have expected, or maybe um, the All Good Things alt-universe would have made you think otherwise, but uh, Jordy uh, looks like he's an admiral uh, we have seven of nine she looks like she's in starfleet they um you know uh rethought their no borg allowed policy and uh she now has a commission it looks like she is a commander so there goes our wonderful idea of having um seven of nine be you know in in uh starfleet academy with Worf. speaking of whom <laughs> we have a gray bearded Worf. um he's carrying some sort of you know sword on his back in this um it doesn't look like it's a uh Either a mechlith or a batlith, so um, that's new. And uh, he doesn't look like he's from uh, uh, Star Trek Discovery, that version of Klingons, uh, which I'm uh, I'm delighted to see. He looks like Worf, and the makeup actually does look decent. I think that's what our concern was. Uh, I think it was last week's episode that we were discussing this. But what's your immediate takeaway from this uh, very brief uh, teaser trailer that we got here? Genuine disappointment that Worf doesn't have the listening device paint on his face, um, as seen in Star Trek Discovery Season 2. So I'll have to get over that. But, um, I, I mean, this is the sort of thing where it, it's like crack for fans, right? Like, here's your beloved characters. They're coming back. But the, this marketing doesn't tell me anything whatsoever about the storytelling. 
So in terms of like seeing these characters again, they look great. I mean, seeing Seven in the, uh, you know, in the uniform kind of answers a question that maybe we had about what she would be doing this season. I had questions about like some of the characters aren't in uniform but i'm also like was that just for diversity of photographs versus where the characters are actually at in the season i don't know i guess we'll find out but everyone looks good and i'm the wharf thing it's going to take a little bit of getting used to just like the the slight adjustments in makeup but uh you know i'm sure it'll be like no time lost in terms of performance he um <laughs> Certainly hasn't aged the same way that uh, Seven of Nine has aged <laughs> as he can. Well, I can believe that Worf has had some rough years. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I know they have some like quotes from the characters. It's like I think Jordy's saying stuff like, you know, my time on the Enterprise made me a better father. Um, that's kind of a weird thing, but uh, you know, we, we did find out in all good things, at least in that version of the uh, universe, that he was a uh, father. Uh, you know, and it, I was looking at it. It looks as if like uh Riker still has Captain Pips like on his like leather jacket that has the combatch mm. or whatever. Um so it looks like he because remember at the end of season one, he was like, I don't know, kind of uh in the reserves, like the Starfleet reserves, and that's why he popped up at the very end. Uh I can understand why maybe Deanna isn't wearing a uniform. The thing that's gonna bug me, it's gonna just eat away at me, but I just still envisioned uh Dr. Crusher uh, in a Starfleet uniform, commanding the USS Pasteur throughout uh, the entire season, as we saw she was doing in All Good Things. But maybe that's just a surprise. Maybe that's yep. why she's not in a uniform just yet. But um, the other thing, Seven is wearing, like, command, uh, like, uh, colors, you know, uh, command division red right there. So it's kind of an interesting. I always thought of her as more of a uh, uh, somebody in blue, you know, just with her time in, in astrophysics and all that. Yeah, that would have made, I guess the most sense to me just jumping off of where Voyager um, ended but uh, I mean who uh, Picard does like to shake up where characters are at often <laughs> for the questionable but I I'm interested like to see Ichab? like where's Ichab like, Ichab? like Ichab so I I'm interested to see like how they kind of explain where Seven's at like was she inspired by her adventures with Picard um to go into command like where are we going here with seven i i well uh, based on her her quote from uh this teaser trailer she says i thought i could inspire people bring justice to an unjust universe so i guess she's trying to reconcile her time with the fenris rangers with her new duty to starfleet which i don't that i'm sorry that, that doesn't sound compelling to me at all and it's like they haven't given a fan favorite character anything compelling to do in the last two seasons. So that has me a little worried. Um, and I would be even more worried considering she's going to be uh, in a season with TNG returning cast members that uh, we won't be getting a lot for Seven that's ultra compelling. I mean, hey, prove me wrong. But we had the previous season of Picard where there was kind of all the time in the world to spend... Um, doing stuff with Seven uh, with like no other TNG characters to compete with for screen time. And uh, they didn't really give us much. Uh, well, uh, they gave her fighting with Raffi. Um, and Raffi's quote from this is, you have no idea how hard it is to be in this world. So it looks as if more more trauma for Raffi ahead, which, um, mm -hmm. okay, I, I guess. 
I guess that's her defining characteristic as it is uh, much of the, uh, the cast members in this new era of Star Trek. So look, I'm, I, uh, I, I feel as if I've been uh, burned way too many times with my excitement for Picard, but I still can't help but feel excited just hmm. to see all these uh, old fan favorites back on screen together again, hopefully giving, you know, I, I just think about how much great material they gave uh, Deanna in Nepenthe. And right. I hope they can do the same for people that were underserved, you know, like Jordy or Beverly. You know, I think that would be excellent. I would just like to see endings to these characters that leave me satisfied because Nemesis was not the best about that. So that's all I can really hope for. They've also said that, you know, Brent Spiner will be back as a old yeah. new character. Do you think it's Alton Soong or do you think we're going in a different direction? I, I think I, I bet Alton Soong has an appearance. Um... Do you think they just pull B4 out of the drawer and, like, put them back together? It's, I would think it's entirely plausible, yeah. Because unless they're going to, like, come up with, like, an entirely different character for Brent Spiner to play again, which <laughs> might feel kind of weird at this point. I mean, it felt weird last season, but it could feel even weirder if they did that again. I, I just have questions because the other thing they teased was, like, a female villain. So I'm like, okay, well, that could mean anything. I mean, I think we'd all like to see payoff to Sela, but I don't know if that's necessarily what's going to happen. Yeah. The one thing that popped into my head is I wonder if they're going to make Sutra the villain and have Alton Sung tied into it that way. Because I don't know how else you like sit there and explain Alton Sung being there <laughs> for an extended period of the season. Where did we leave off with Sutra? And for those who don't remember, that was yet another one of the uh, android embodiments that's uh, one Isa Brionis played uh, by the end of season one of Picard. Uh, she had like kind of the, the cool kind of gold skin look to her as well. I am struggling to remember whether they like deactivated her and turned her off or if they just left her on that planet. The fact that you have two Star Trek podcast hosts that uh, can't really remember the fate of this antagonist. Um, maybe it speaks to the show. Maybe it speaks to how bad we are being Star Trek podcast hosts, Cam. Maybe that's just it. I'm leaning towards the latter. Um, but okay. yeah, like yeah. the thing was, <laughs> I was really into Sutra. I thought that character worked really well. So like, I'm not against that being an antagonist for the season. But uh, I, I can also see why they might hide that if they don't want to reveal... Um, that right up front as well. But it's it's still so bizarre that they just um, got rid of Sochi as if, like, nothing happened. Like, she's just hanging out with the Deltons still, which maybe a little jealous of that. But uh, And then, <laughs> like, Corey, uh, she's off with the Traveler. It just really seemed as if they wanted to wrap up that actress, yeah. which is strange. It, or it also seems as if they were, like, they liked Isa Brionis, and they were just trying to, like... Uh, like inorganically stuff her into this series for whatever reason. So I think bringing back Sutra would feel more organic. What they do with her, I, I hope it pays off, but this is not a show that I have too much faith in uh, at this point. Well, that's the thing. It's like just, the, you know, they're going to be marketing this and they already are as the final season. And I'm like, well, I didn't really care for the first two seasons. So like if they can deliver something that I enjoy, like that'd be great. I can walk away happy and be like, well, I didn't really care for Star Trek Picard, but I, the final season gave me some closure on characters I like, so at least I can take that from it. That's all I can hope for at this point. I just, I struggle to open myself up to the possibility of thinking this is a legitimately good season. Like, I just, they uh -huh. haven't given me enough to be confident in. They should be marketing as like, thank God, it's the final season. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know, right? Uh, like, uh, well, one other see. character. I, I just I want to go back to Worf for just one second, though, is because like he's in his Starfleet uniform yet again, and I've just they wrapped him up so well on Deep Space Nine. You know, mm-hmm. like he like Starfleet wasn't necessarily for Worf. It wasn't necessarily his calling. And I think you always got the sense that there was just something. Like, he never felt quite comfortable in his own skin trying to find that balance between his, his own heritage and being, like, a, a Starfleet officer. And, and uh, seeing that he's actually in the diplomatic corps, you know, like, pursuing diplomacy of all things, I think that's kind of, that would have been such a fun way for Worf to live out his legacy, essentially, you know. And, and knowing he's just back in Starfleet, you know, I, I it's just kind of disappointing. And, and I, I just loved what they did with him in Deep Space Nine by the end of it all, especially when he went on that mission to, you know, retrieve that Cardassian dissident with Jedzia, and, and Ben Sisko said that after he chose Jedzia's life over the uh, dissident's life, um, Starfleet will never give him a command. So you kind of know that his his career has, like, this ceiling to it as well. Yeah, I always feel like with Worf, despite the fact DS9 is the best Worf storytelling, period, they tend to default to TNG Worf. It's like, what was going on with that character in the TNG kind of stuff? That's what matters to them. So the fact that they had him in uniforms in those movies, that's what they're running with because more people look at Worf through the the lens of TNG than DS9, despite the fact we all know DS9 does it better. Yeah, okay. Um, Speaking of DS9, maybe we can uh, talk about the uh, new trailer for Season 3 of Star Trek Lower Decks, in which uh, the the, uh, Grand Ole Space Station is featured quite prominently, as well as uh, we we got a glimpse of uh, Cisco's uh, Creole restaurants uh, down in uh, New Orleans as well. Um, I I don't know, for me, it's... It's so cheap, it's so easy, but my skin can't help but tingle when I see uh, them uh, <laughs> orbiting Deep Space Nine and they're playing the music and uh, they're commenting on uh, just, <laughs> like, what it must have been, it must have been like a runabout camera crew that uh, filmed that entire thing uh, 30 years ago, right? That was the big laugh of that uh, trailer, um, just playing out that them trying to dock at DS9. I thought that was genius. <laughs> I don't know how that plays to someone that never watched DS9, but nonetheless, I think it's yeah. hilarious. Um, we also got a tease of uh, Martok as well, yeah. continuing the DS9 connections with J.J. Hertzler. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do on the show. It's like... Martok's one of those characters who has so much potential to bring back into live-action Star Trek, but I feel like they're just not going to at least that's the vibe i kind of get so if we can yeah. get them on lower decks i'll take it can't, can't we just get like one moment between martok and Worf on picard like that just give us just even like a, a, a passing glimpse of him as Worf departs you know uh chronos or something like that. that that would be excellent but if it's for some sort of comedic deal i, I think martok wasn't really used for comedy that much although i think he would have actually like in the very few moments like i, I think it was in um uh in the cards there's like some sort of like funny like martok moment there and i i just wish that they kind of uh they could tap that i think that'd be a lot of fun to see on lower decks i think like jj hertzler can definitely make martok funny i think there's just like a gruffness that i think of like i don't know the episode where like you have martok around nog where like nog has to earn his respect um, that was pretty funny, and I think you could do something really, in- I mean, just come on, like, cross, like, Boimler over with Martok, that's, like, a comedy combination right there. Cam, 
will be cruel if we get to see the exterior of Deep Space Nine, and we even get to take a little trip into the promenade. We, we did see in Season 1 that there was a, 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 a glimpse of Quark's bar there. Um, will it just be too mean if we don't get to see, you know, a, a character or hear a character's voice, you know, like, I, I think Akira or a Quark would make the most sense, you know, but I could make do if it's just, you know, like, um, Dr. Bashir doing his rounds or something like that, fixing a uh, Boimler's broken thumb. I hope, like, come on, you, we've got to do more with DS9. Like, you have to. And the show has been really good about bringing on interesting guest stars. The fact that they're advertising in their initial trailer before the season even airs that they've got Martok would indicate they've got other characters they're going to keep close to the vest. Mm -hmm. So I would not be surprised if we have some major DS9 stuff in that episode that in particular they're advertising. You mean Major Kira? <laughs> major Kira. I mean, Quark seems quite likely. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. I just like it. Just seems like it, it, it's right for the taking, right there. So I, I'm, I'll remain hopeful, but I will be prepared to be disappointed as well. That's always the case with New Trek. That's a great attitude to have. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, another comment with regards to the teaser trailer uh, for Lower Decks is um, I like when they're eating at the restaurant and all the um, the crew's civilian outfits. They really look like something civilians would wear like back mm -hmm. in that robert blackman era robert blackman was the uh, costume designer uh back in the 1990s uh and um i don't know i, I just got a chuckle out of that and maybe actually think um based on um that moment plus the teaser trailer for uh, picard you know you know we've joked non-stop about how the star trek universe seems to be obsessed with vests but it is so obvious that it, it's now obsessed with the leather like, yes. everyone has to be wearing leather at all times. And so I, I hope that Lower Decks can um, you know, make fun of that uh, at, at some point. That this leather obsession, whether it's like shoulder pads, jackets, or even tunics, <laughs> as we saw in the <laughs> first season of Strange New Worlds, which is quite bizarre, but you know. Well, you think about um, how obscure Lower Decks has already gone. And they have many more seasons to go, hopefully. So just imagine how obscure the references will be like by season five or six. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, also with regards to, you know, Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks, um, I don't know how it's going to work. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it'll be something like Roger Rabbit, I guess. That's what they're indicating, unless this is a big prank. But there will be a Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks crossover episode in which Jonathan Frakes will be directing it, and it will combine both live action and animation. Um, yeah. Sure. <laughs> why not? Um, I, you know, um, the only thing is my interpretation is as kind of uh, silly and hyper um, that you know, Lower Decks is. Like, I, I, I have still rationalized it in my head that it's still taking place in the Prime Universe. I really don't want them to pull, like, a... Uh, you know, and everything, everywhere, all at once, and make this some sort of, like, uh, alt kind of universe, you know, where people all have, like, hot dog fingers or something like that, you know? Like, I I, I hope they can ra rationalize it or, or make it respectful or, or somehow explain why it's in animation, but it's still the prime universe. I remember they talked about how they'd be taking some major swings with season two of Strange New Worlds, and this feels like it could be a major swing <laughs> because, like... I've loved, you know, Strange New Worlds so far. Love Lower Decks. The two of them 
have different energies and the merging of like animation with uh, live action on Strange New Worlds. Initially, I just assumed it would be a Lower Decks crossover. And I was like, that makes complete sense to me. And then I saw it was a... Like you'd have an animated pike on Lower Decks, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That Um, that would make sense to me. Yeah, that's easy to do. But when I saw it was on Strange New Worlds, I was like... Okay, well, you know what? Like, Star Trek <laughs> has done some crazy things in the past, you know, you know, uh, Trials and Tribulations. That's a pretty crazy episode. So, okay, I'm ready for it. Let's see what they do. But I'm really interested to see how they explain this. Like, yeah. what, what world is this where there's animated Star Trek characters who are existing? Like... I, I don't I can't wrap my head around it. The thing is they figured it out. So it's now up for us to like anticipate it and try to figure out how they've done it, but I really struggle to wrap my head around this one. <laughs> It'd be lot. great if nobody comments on the fact that like Boimler and Mariner are in fact animated. Like Yeah. They're, they're just walking <laughs> through the halls. No, nobody notices that they're in fact animated, yeah. Because I thought initially, well, Tony Newsom and Jack Quaid, you could easily just make them the live-action counterparts um, yeah, quite yeah. easily. Um, they look somewhat like their characters, so that'd be no problem. But uh, this is, like, exciting. But this was, this feels like a high-wire act that I'm just really interested to see if they pull off. It's like the, the long-teased possibility of doing a Star Trek musical episode. Mm. And I think it'd be... Pretty difficult to do, and uh, do it in a way that doesn't seem like outrageous or wild. But I don't know. There's got to be some sort of um, alien encounter that will explain this. I don't know. But it's like I. But I'm I'm glad that they're swinging. Like I, I'd rather they do yeah. this type of stuff rather than um, go for like monotonous monolithic storytelling you know i was thinking about like what are there like you're not going to have a discovery and lower decks crossover you're not going to have a picard and lower decks crossover uh, in which these animated characters um appear on those very very serious shows like strange new world seems perfect for that i think they had a real misfire with the fantasy episode last season but i i don't want them to be afraid to try outrageous things like this like i'm down for this yeah i can't wait to see when this episode lands, I'll be curious where they put it within the season of Strange New Worlds. It's got to be towards the back, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the finale. <laughs> Just comedic finale, yeah. I mean, they're going to want to build that one up. So it's going to fall at a like crucial placement within the season. Um, I mean, we can only wait and see, but I'm looking forward to this one a lot. Okay. Uh, so a couple little notes that came out of uh, the, uh, the Star Trek panel at Comic-Con. Um, a, uh, a fan who was a uh, hearing impaired asked if they would ever cast a, uh, hearing impaired person, uh, or create a character. And, uh, Alex Kurtzman, the, uh, the shepherd of Star Trek right now, he says that they are considering doing that for two new upcoming shows. I, uh, interesting that he, hmm. he's talking about like two shows being in development. So is that Academy and is that Section 31? And I guess they're still... Pursuing some sort of development about shows that no fans seem to be clamoring for? Or they just have shows that they're quietly working on and haven't said anything about yet. That's entirely possible, too. Because they know the fans don't care about the uh, the other two? Maybe. Maybe they're just like, let's I keep... I hope so. Maybe it's kind of embarrassing for them as well to be, like, floating Section 31, and then nothing happens for, like, years... And it kind of becomes this thing they're constantly asked about. So maybe they're just like, next time, let's not mention things until they're actually rolling. 
They've been floating Section 31 since 2018. Yeah. If, let's say the show magically appears um, next year, which I think would be very difficult to do, especially considering, um, you know, Michelle Yeoh's schedule right now. She's starring in a new Netflix series. Um, movies galore for her as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think you, it's a five-year gap between your when you announce the development of this show and the time that it finally arrives, if there's demand for it, it would have been out right away. So like you said, maybe it's a little embarrassing for them. Maybe the other show though, maybe it's, maybe it is the seven of nine spinoff that I think despite them not <laughs> giving her any good material, the last two seasons, I, I still really want to see an Annika Hansen seven of nine spinoff series. Like that would be awesome. Yeah. Or who knows? Maybe it's something completely out of left field. We would never predict, which would be even more exciting. Well, yeah, just like Strange New Worlds Lower Decks crossover, <laughs> uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah, so, definitely. Um, so a- a- another little note here. Uh, another fan um, asked if uh, Patrick Stewart, uh, eh, any chance that uh, the full cast would do a-, a feature film? You know, talking about the TNG cast. Um, mm-hmm. Stewart says it's a possibility. And uh, yeah, so, okay, okay. I sure, it- it's possible. But uh, he didn't say no. Which right. I found interesting. So there you go. And I, I would assume it, it, it's not a feature film. It's more like a Paramount Plus exclusive. You, most likely, I would think. I, I can't quite see this one landing on the big screen at this point. Um, well, um, I hope that that doesn't prevent them from writing really strong endings to those characters at the end of Picard oh, Season God. 3, thus de- entirely deflating my uh, enthusiasm for watching the show. <laughs> On that note, um, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, we we have a fun episode coming up next. Uh, I don't want to say much more because there's some uh, twists and turns that uh, uh, entail. But uh, yeah, Cam, uh, okay. if there's more breaking news, I'm sure we'll talk about it next week. We're we're done for this week uh, so far. Beaming out. This week, we are here to talk about the best and worst of New Trek, the era of Star Trek that really kicks off first with CBS All Access, now Paramount Plus, but it's also known as the Kurtzman era since Alex Kurtzman became the shepherd of the franchise. Yeah, I think everything since 2017, we can exclude something like, say, Star Trek Beyond, which came out in 2016, and, and I just go from there. I, I think that makes most sense. And, and what we want to do is kind of uh, talk about our top 10 best episodes, and there are lots of episodes I genuinely think uh, just really capture the spirit of Star Trek, and also get into maybe our bottom 10 episodes, stuff that just makes me kind of like pull my eyeballs out and scream to the high heavens how could you do this to me the ghost of the great bird of the galaxy and then uh cam what do we uh rank uh the season so far i i think there have been some genuinely awesome seasons of this era and i i, I want to get into it and i think there have been a couple uh turds uh in in terms of like seasons in their entirety and uh we can get into that that so i i think this will be a fun episode it's not going to be like just negative nellies i think we'll have fun talking about what makes star trek really good in this you know post 2017 era definitely and i mean we aren't going to rank prodigy because that's only halfway through the season you may not know that if you're not paying close attention (laughs) it might seem like they wrapped up their first season but they're coming back people they're only halfway through we just don't know when they're coming back Twenty twenty seven. Oh, it's so frustrating because Prodigy is legit good, and I would love yes. to talk about what that season means within the context of all the other things we're going to talk about in this episode, but I can't. They aren't letting me, Tyler. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, Kim, why don't we start with the best episodes? We'll go from, you know, number 10 down through number 1. We can go back and forth. As any given episode comes up, we'll have a discussion, and then as we go through the list, we can kind of reveal where our uh, particular ranking is if there is some overlap here. But, uh, Cam, uh, why don't you kick it off with uh, number 10 of the best episodes of New Trek? So my number 10 is actually a short trek, a possibly dormant series um, that was once a really exciting thing that was out there where they were doing kind of quirky Star Trek stories that were about 10 minutes long. I miss them. Bring them back. But nonetheless, I chose Calypso, which for me, after the home run hit of Runaway out of the gate, the Tilly episode that I think we were both scratching our heads over, we got this one Calypso that was just this interesting sci-fi story about a guy who happens upon the abandoned discovery ship and has a relationship with the computer who we would later know as zora and like this one was cinematic it took a really fun high concept it told a fun story and i still think about this short trek like all the time and not only because i'm waiting to see it paid off just because i legitimately found this a very enchanting 12 minutes of star trek storytelling well, it definitely feels like it is a Star Trek story. It fits within the universe uh, beyond just taking place aboard the abandoned Discovery here. What got me really excited, because I, I, I absolutely fell in love with this episode as well. As you said, you use the word enchanting. I think that's the perfect way to summarize it. But uh, we also found out that Michael Javon, uh, who wrote this episode, he would be the showrunner for Picard Season 1. That got me mm -hmm. super excited for Picard Season 1. I don't necessarily think that uh, Siobhan's pedigree as a Pulitzer winning author plus the uh, writer of Calypso quite um, manifested in an exceptional season of Star Trek Picard but everything just the momentum that uh, it carried with it got me really excited but uh, just being able to get emotionally invested in something that's only like 12 or 13 minutes long you know I, I would point to an episode uh, or kind of a sequence in Star Trek the uh, first JJ movie in which it's the opening like eight minutes in which you're aboard mm -hmm. the USS Kelvin and you're following George Kirk and his wife as uh, one James T is born uh, <laughs> under duress there um I think you can really do these exceptional emotional stories in a short period of time, which makes it all the more frustrating when you just kind of check out over the course of 55 minutes because you just don't care about what's going on or what fate will bestow the characters. I thought Calypso was exceptional. As you said, Cam, I can't wait for Discovery to hopefully kind of explain what was ultimately going on there. Hopefully, but it just seems like to me like Calypso showed what short treks should have been. And like we had ones like Ephraim and Dot and stuff later on that seemed to be picking up that thread and just doing really unique Star Trek stories. And I just, I know that like right now with so many shows on the air, they don't really need short treks, but I wish they would keep it alive for the purpose of doing offshoot things that can't be worked into a season. Runaway could have been part of, you know, a Star Trek Discovery episode. Things like um, Calypso really can't. I almost like the idea that, yeah, like Runaway could have been like a B story for an episode of Discovery. I like this more anthology kind of idea that's going on here and just taking Star Trek into all these different directions, which we definitely got the more episodic era. And we're getting in again now with uh, Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks. But I think Short Treks really kind of introduced us to, or at least it really reminded us how great Star Trek could be when you don't have this monolithic tone or mm. overarching, you know, story arc for like an entire season that you're trying to pay tribute to. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great pick. My number 10 
is going to be a season finale. That, of course, is a season finale of Star Trek Lower Deck Season 1, No Small Parts. I thought that was kind of a, like, like an exceptional way to cap off kind of all the emotional stuff going on in which we finally find out, uh, or at least the crew does, uh, that uh, Freeman and Mariner are uh, uh, related there. And it, it, it's so funny how you can get kind of these kind of emotional payoffs that make sense when you get to the end of what, uh, I, I guess, if these were Star Trek terms uh, added up into minutes, it would be hmm. like, what, like five episodes of Deep Space Nine, but spread out over, over 10 episodes uh, of, you know, 22 minutes or so here in uh, Lower Decks. I think this is a great payoff to what had been building up, well, a little bit of a, a mixed start to season one. They found their footing halfway through, and I think No Small Barts was an exceptional payoff to the season as a whole. I actually had this one at number four, so I had it very high in my rankings, and I think... You're right. Like season one, Lower Decks, it took like maybe five episodes or so to find its feet. But like they ended with this finale. I thought it was such a home run of a finale that I was so excited for season two. The way it set up the Packlids as an ongoing presence, I thought was genius because it felt like something you could only do in Lower Decks. And yet they were scary here. They had, I think, a really great character death in Shaxx, you know, character death in quotations. Um... And things like Peanut Hamper, the introduction of that character was really funny. This to me was like the perfect balance for Lower Decks of like really strong Star Trek storytelling, but also the kind of crazy comedy you want. It, mer it merged the two very, very well. Probably the best, I think, as far as the show's gone for me so far. Look, I think you and I agree that Lower Decks really captured the spirit of Star Trek. Do you have an impression about what like broader fandom thinks of the show? Like just talking to more casual fans... I, I spoke to somebody, like a, a former guest on the show, I won't name names, but uh, he watched, you know, the first season. I think his reaction was, eh, it was all right when he was talking about Lower Decks. I don't know, like, I'm just wondering about, like, kind of our connection to the series, because I think it took a little while to get going, and I wonder if that put off a lot of people or made other folks just a little bit more skeptical about what the series was ultimately capable of. I have no real sense of how this show is faring out there. It seems like there's... Definite fans, you know, when they have the cast showing up at um, Chicago Con, people seem legit excited about it. But, like, I wonder if part of it is, like, the comedy is, like, too, quote-unquote, silly for a lot of people who take Star Trek very seriously. And those fans are definitely out there. Um, and so it, like, speaks to a specific audience within the Star Trek community. And I haven't... You've said your brother is enjoying it, who's not a, you know, diehard Star Trek fan, but I don't have a real sense in my life of people outside of Star Trek fans who would watch it. And even, like, um, you know, my friend's son, who's 12, I was talking to him just the other night. Um, he's just finished the TNG movies, so his TNG journey is over, and he's talking about where to go next. I think he's going to do Strange New Worlds next. Um, but um, I brought up Lower Decks, and I could see kind of this, like, almost look of disinterest of, like, oh, like, the animated Star Trek show, that's not really what I want to watch, when I think the show has far more to offer than maybe it looked like it had on paper. Well, it's just interesting. Like, look, I, we'll talk about Prodigy uh, at another time, you know, but it's like Prodigy is kind of the more serious Star Trek show, even though it's meant for kids. I, I could totally find it watchable as an adult and i don't mean watchable as like yeah it's fine i can get through it but i mean like uh quite entertaining and engaging and i wonder if it, it would have been like even smarter for the star trek producers to have something more along the lines of prodigy more of a, a serious animated show before they get into comedy that might have been an interesting angle to look at it from because people were almost like 
well, there was a real sense of like, this show's making fun of Star Trek. And I remember right. that kind of bubbling in the atmosphere. And for people who are like hardcore Star Trek fans, they're going to watch it no matter what, just to see what it is. But I wonder if people who had more of that casual appreciation of the franchise were just like instantly dismissive and they're going to be less likely to wade in and watch it in the first place. What, what about the, uh, the potential behind a uh, live action sitcom? for Star Trek. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, one of those classic multicam sitcoms like Friends or Seinfeld. It could be more a single camera comedy like The Office, you know, like, I would, do you think that that could work? Or would it just come off as like way too hokey? I, I'm just wondering if Lower Decks has, uh, it has quite a benefit to it because it's animated. It can afford to go into more of that kind of hyper reality, and we'll give it a little bit more slack than we would like a uh, Star Trek live action sitcom. Wait, I thought the Section Thirty One show was going to be a sitcom. No, you know what? I, I, my apologies. <laughs> yeah, uh, nothing but comedy galore there. I think the potential of like a sitcom Star Trek. Hmm, I, I wonder in a post sort of Orville world if they would even want to wade into that because it might feel a little too similar. Um, I, I mean, From my understanding though, the, the Orville isn't so much like a comedy show, yeah, anymore. It, it, it's really there might be some quips or something like that, but I, I think, and I haven't watched it since the uh, season one finale. But my understanding, it's it's more of like Seth uh, MacFarlane just doing his own cosplay version of TNG at this point, right? Hmm. I mean, anything is like completely possible because now that like. CBS, or I mean Paramount Plus, I should say, wants to exploit Star Trek for everything it's worth. You know, they're talking about Section 31, Starfleet Academy. It, at a certain point, might make sense just to try it to see if it works because you can't keep hitting people with variations on the same thing. So it seems like they want to go in wildly different directions. So at a certain point, it feels like a sitcom could very much be on the table. Um, but I feel like it's a few years down the road. I think they need like a okay. couple more hit live action shows before they kind of start to get a little more experimental. Oh, um, fair enough. That, that's my guess. So speaking of Lower Decks, my number nine is also a Lower Decks episode, and it's Veritas from season one. This episode, I think, for me, is the funniest episode, I think, of um, Star Trek Lower Decks. And it's the one that it doesn't have sort of the mytholo uh, mythology-based storytelling you get in like no small parts, but it's just like nailing down what Lower Decks comedy is when it just goes full-blown crazy and how it can be hugely effective. I think about this episode a lot with some of its set pieces like the um, Rutherford spacing in and out and waking up at the Gorn wedding sequence, um, all of the stuff to do with the trial, Q dressed up, um, or sorry, dressing the uh, senior crew up as like chess pieces, all that sort of stuff I thought was so much fun. So I was a big fan of Veritas. Yeah, you know, look, any time there's a Gorn wedding, I am there. And the fact that they'd even do something like that was just great. Even like funny little like throwaways, just like the security guards on Vulcan, you know, I've seen like the ships in the background of that, uh, that flight museum there, you know, they're just all the little Easter eggs that they stick into an episode like Veritas. And it's not as if we've seen like that sort of episode before. I think the closest you could uh, compare it to would actually be, uh, Star Trek Next Generation's own episode called Lower Decks, in which people don't exactly know what's going on at all times. And, and mm -hmm. when we're talking about like the these junior officers here, and they're kind of kept in the dark, as is the audience, and that kind of plays out here in Veritas. I thought this is like kind of an exceptional episode when it aired. I think it was um, maybe six or seven 
in season one. And I think that's when we really felt very confident the show was like really uh, kind of firing on all cylinders at that point. And I remember being convinced like this would be probably the best episode of the season and they still had some surprises left yes. in store. So yeah, season one was, got really exciting. Okay, I'm going to jump over to uh, my first pick for a short trek. At number nine for my list here is Escape Artist, in which we have the return of Harry Mudd, Cam. For all listeners leading up to Star Trek Discovery, all they heard was me complaining about all the marketing featuring Harry Mad, as uh, hmm. <laughs> as we heard him refer to. Well, not necessarily, but it was just like it was terrible marketing when like Burnham was like, "Are you mad?" Yeah. No mud and i was like grown but it's also like this is a guy who's like he he literally was a sex trafficker as he uh in his first appearance in the original series i'm like are you really gonna make this like a funny character nowadays uh, whatever you want to say they, they kind of rehabilitated that character at least in a prequel form uh, rain wilson uh took the reins i should say he did an exceptional job i'm just like okay this is a short trek where I'm like they are having so much fun in this universe and what you can have kind of the nods to the original series version in which there's you finally realize that the whole uh, plot uh, or the whole twist, I guess, surrounds uh, androids, which is a nod to uh, uh, what was the second mud episode after mud's women camp? I mud. I mud. Yes. You know, that was great stuff. Uh, just even him uh, <laughs> being hunted down uh, by the Tellarite uh, bounty hunter. There, there's a cudgel involved, uh, a, hmm. a, uh, a betrayed sister. You know, it, it's like, okay, I, I, I think it was like kind of the goofiest that uh, Star Trek got in that early era. I think this was 2018. And I think season two of Discovery was not going to premiere until at least midway through 2019. I think it was like September 2019. So there was a big sizable gap between the season one and season two. And I think they were filling them up with like kind of fun little ideas that they couldn't get away with otherwise. And that, that's why I've got Escape Artist here. Uh, this is my short trek pick, or at least my, my first one that I have here for our rankings. In some way, this uh, short trek was a little bit of a teaser for kind of the energy and tone of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Because, like, when this came out, it didn't feel like something that would exist within Star Trek Discovery. But I could totally see this particular short track taking place within the uh, the world of Strange New Worlds, which to me makes me very excited to see that character somehow um, brought into that show. And I know Rain Wilson is eager to do it. So, Harry Mudd, I mean, as someone who's a huge TOS fan and ranks it as their favorite of all the Star Treks, I was not screaming out for more Harry Mudd stories. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I Mudd's okay, but, like... I don't know, whatever. I'm not a big like Harry Mudd guy from the original series. Um, his episode of the animated series is a little bit fun, but again, was not like ultra excited. And I found like when it you know it came to Star Trek Discovery, they actually did a pretty good job with them. So it actually made me excited to see more of this character in the future. Hopefully, it happens because Rain Wilson, he's excited. Uh, you are really more of a Cyrano Jones kind of fella, right? Definitely, definitely, big time Cyrano Jones. I'm wearing the T-shirt right now. So, okay. yes. Um, my number eight is Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2. And maybe like a little bit of a controversial pick, given the way that many view Discovery now. But I tried to look at this in terms of taking Discovery on its own terms, where it wanted to be a more action-based Star Trek show, as well as, as we've seen the last two seasons, embrace melodrama in a big way. And when I look at this season finale at the end of season two... It did all of what that show aspires to do to the best I've ever seen it do it. And I've never seen them quite hit this level 
since. You know, you had all the payoff to the Pike and Spock stuff. You had Burnham saying goodbye to Spock. You had Discovery going into the future. You had some incredibly well-staged action throughout the episode. Is it classic TNG-level Star Trek storytelling? No. But in terms of, I think, what Star Trek Discovery aimed to be, especially at that point in time, this one was really, really strong to me. Like, one of the all-time favorites from this season. See, I'm so conflicted because I think you're totally right, and I agree with you generally when it says, you know, take it for what it is, view it within a vacuum, don't consider what comes next, even if you're disappointed here. I uh, Yeah, we really enjoyed this episode. Uh, you know, I could nitpick at things like, you know, like uh, Leland versus uh, Giorgio doing like ninja moves for what seemed like 30 minutes straight. Uh, hmm. That kind of grated on me after a while, but uh, just, but what you're pointing out, you know, like kind of the, 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 uh, uh, farewells or the partings, as uh, you might say, uh, you know, just especially between uh, one Spock and Burnham, you know, that stuff really worked for me. And I, I did get a laugh out of, you know, Burnham saying, Spock, you need to find your guiding light. And I'm like, okay, well, it's been about four, four and a half years since that point. Uh, I, I think at the time we were interpreting it to be one uh, James T. Kirk. I think, you know what, I'm fine if his guiding light is ultimately just going to be Christopher Pike at this point. Although she did say the person who's the most opposite from you. And I don't know that that's Pike. That's more, I think, Kirk. Okay. Or no, no. It's um, it's Bones. Oh, you know what? You're right. That will, that'll be the moment. We'll finally encounter Bones on Strange New Worlds and we'll get a flashback to Burnham saying that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It'll be uh, uh, Spock's own flashback and he'll realize, oh, you know what? No matter the racism... I'll go along with this uh, man on, on this friendship journey here. <laughs> a lifelong journey, that's right. <laughs> okay, my number eight. Uh, I'm going to follow one short trek, uh, my last pick uh, with another short trek. This is The Trouble with Edward. Uh, this was a very polarizing episode. You and I loved it. We were literally like laughing out loud watching it. Uh, this is kind of the origin story for the Tribbles as we know them. Uh, this is just so off the rails in terms of tone from anything we had seen come before it. I think the closest thing you compare to it right now is like any given episode of Lower Decks. This is essentially Lower Decks manifest into live action before we ever saw Lower Decks appear on screen. Uh, the gags work for me, you know, such as uh, Edward describing, you know, the, the taste of Tribbles as, you know, scallop-like, uh, that sort of stuff. Him inserting his own DNA to it. Uh, just kind of the, the, the comedy stuff going on with how the Tribbles truly invaded this ship in a way that we had never before seen in Star Trek. You know, um, who, who needs, you know, grain compartments overflowing when you've got literal corridors mashing people up against, you know, these escape hatches. You know, um, I, I do feel bad for uh, the captain of this ship, her first command, essentially being ruined by a toxic man. I, I can get why it's a polarizing episode, but Cam, uh, this one lit me up. Um, it, it's just some one of just the, the most like weirdest kind of offshoots of Star Trek we've ever seen. Uh, period over the course of eight hundred or so episodes. It really was, and again, it points to what I loved about Short Treks, which is doing things you can't do within the confines of your normal Star Trek shows. And I, I feel like with this one, it didn't quite make my list, but it came close. This one, I I feel like the reason that it got a lot of lousy reviews on IMDb or whatever largely had to do with canon issues yes. versus like what the episode was actually doing. It doesn't quite fit as snugly into canon as perhaps you'd like, but I don't really care. This was having so much fun and had such amazing gags. 
the comedy was great. I liked the way that, you know, it actually fits really well into the tone of Strange New Worlds because you had Pike appearing in this as well. Um, I really enjoyed this a lot. It's one that when I was making my list, it was often hard for me to look at some of these episodes because they fall within arcs, you know, that maybe I don't care for. Um, but I would think about what are the ones that excite me to watch right now? Like if I were to sit down, which ones would I want to throw on? And The Trouble with Edward is a good example of that. I would happily watch that right after we finish recording. I know, like 12, 13 minutes, boom. Um, and with regards to the, you know, canon stuff, I, I think like the biggest hang up people had was like, well, it was established earlier that the Tribbles were always prodigious. And I think it was based on a line that Flock said in uh, Enterprise. I, this is how I can easily rationalize it in my own head. Um, what if Flocks just made a mistake? What What if he was wrong? You know, yeah. like, and this is in fact how they became prodigious. Uh, one of the things I love about The Sopranos is characters will lie all the time, mm. and the episode never calls them out on it. And by that, it, it, you know, when you watch another drama series, and if somebody lies. You always have some character calling that character, uh, that liar, out on it eventually at some point. Sopranos just let people lie all the time and, and didn't really comment on it. And I think I, I can kind of rationalize that in my head. You know, what, what if a character is just wrong and nobody corrected him? So that, that, that's my, that's why I don't have a trouble with Edward. <laughs> I also feel like as I am bombarded with uh, franchise entertainment that's kind of weak, like say Obi-Wan, I just have to remove elements of canon. Like, I'll just have to watch the stories on their own terms because I just, it's hard to care anymore. Like, the way they exploit all franchises now, you can't get hung up on it anymore. Trouble with Edward, I really like it, but I don't care if it fits into canon or not in the, at this point. No. So, my number seven is Cupid's Errant Arrow from nice, Season 1 nice. Lower Decks. Yeah, this is the one where <laughs> Boimler's girlfriend comes to visit and Mariner is just fascinated and horrified at this blooming romance going on. This episode was, I think, the turning point for Lower Decks where it was like, oh, like this show could be really, really good. We we could see that it had promise, right, I think from day one, but it felt like everything kind of crystallized in this episode and... When I was talking about episodes, I can go back and watch right, you know, after recording. This one ranks really high. It was consistently hilarious. Boimler looking like a complete nerd and then having this young woman refer to him as being so cool. Like that kind of <laughs> comedy really worked for me. And I thought that like just the performance um, by um, Jack Quaid in this, you know, voicing Boimler was this is one of his all time great performances, I think, on the show. Oh, yeah. For me, this, uh, as you said, this is a turning point for me when it came to the ep uh, the uh, season. And I recently watched this episode uh, just for, in fact, for like work purposes, uh, funnily enough. This episode holds up, you know, like uh, the laughs are still there. They still work for me. Uh, you have the appearance, you know, as we are uh, two uh, podcasters based in Vancouver. You had the appearance of the USS Vancouver, the Parliament class ship. That was kind of a hoot as well. A nice shout out to our town in uh, the background with like shuttles named after neighborhoods. It was almost as if this episode is kind of meant for you and me. I still think mm. it's like legit funny, even if you're, <laughs> you don't necessarily have to be somebody from, uh, from Vancouver to enjoy it as well. Yeah. I mean, that's just little in jokes for, uh, for us for sure. But like this episode, I just thought was when you're talking about like sitcom Star Trek, I feel like this is kind of like your perfect sitcom Star Trek episode. If you had to uh, find an analog series in which you would apply this script to another, you know, uh, Star Trek show, which, you know, crew 
slash starship or space station, whatever you want to do it, what would you apply this one? And you, you have to pick out the Boimler character in this as well. Yeah, like, you know, immediately what jumped to mind was I thought this could have been a Jake and Nog story hmm. where maybe it would be Nog or something would be the uh, Boimler character. And Jake is the Mariner, kind of like cannot understand why this uh, this fetching potential partner uh, is so into Nog. Yeah, like this is a younger, um, like, you know, story for these characters. This isn't like season seven DS9, but maybe in yeah. like season three or four or something like that. Okay. Um, yeah. My head, <laughs> I have it as uh, a Jordy LaForge centric episode. In which uh, Wesley's the very suspicious one um, uh, here. Oh, or is it? Oh, is this a Barkley episode? And it's Jordy that's obsessed with finding out. <laughs> okay, I could I, I could totally buy both of those uh, those switcheroos. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, there's just nothing makes me laugh more than that. Uh, uh, the episode Sarek uh, from TNG in which uh, his emotions are being spread to other people as Sark becomes more emotionally unstable <laughs> in his old age. And uh, Wesley shouts at Jordy, the only way you can get a girlfriend is through the holodeck. You know, just like <laughs> that sort of stuff. That was you know, amazing. the writers in the, in the writer's room were like laughing their butts off when they were doing that. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, that's a comic gold moment. Smoke's coming off the pen. No, the quill. <laughs> that's a classic uh yeah picard kind of uh reference he would totally be using a quill yeah okay so Kim, my number seven here uh we are getting into uh at least for me um <laughs> i think this is the first full-length episode i've had a a mix of like uh sitcom length episodes and short treks uh this is the stargazer this is the season two premiere of star trek picard mm. in which we are catching up with the crew we are introduced to a brand new starship that is looking glorious here the affirmation well it's not actually the affirmation stargazer the stargazer in question is, uh, well, one Jean-Luc Picard. This set us up for what I thought was going to be uh, one of the greatest rehabilitations of any season of Star Trek <laughs> since uh, season three came on of TNG after we had to endure um, Shades of Grey hmm. as the finale to season two. Uh, and you know what, Cam, I'm going to go back to what you're saying with regards to, uh, you know, Such Sweet Star Part 2. I'm going to take it for what it is. I'm going to enjoy it in the vacuum that came here. But this is an exciting episode in which you see where the crew is going, where they are now after they're kind of that ragtag bunch. Um, they, they, they unceremoniously dispatch with um, with Sochi in um, a strange fashion, and they kind of start to pare the crew down more and more. But we ultimately get the episode kind of ending with Q in kind of a moment that still kind of gives me chills. I just think that his reappearance in, you know, like de-aged um, Q form uh, was uh, fantastic. And then he goes into the goateed, aged John Delancey. It, it's still a moment that sticks with me. Um, I, can't, <laughs> I would like to forget about what comes after. But Camp, I thought the Stargazer was absolutely fantastic that is my number seven on my list of the best episodes of new trek yeah just outside my list but i mean this episode boy talk about like just a really good episode of what picard should be like yes <laughs> you watch that and you're like i feel even better now about slagging some of the terrible decisions of picard season two because they could do it. Yes. You look at the first episode and the second episode, they could write great Picard stories on that show. 
It's that it, they all just backslid once it came to the, you know, arc building and basically stretching things out. But you look at that Stargazer episode, they have it. Like, they know how to do it. They just, for some reason, don't. <laughs> you you call it arc building. I call it the art of the delay. And which I don't think sure. they've mastered this art in what you just, like, delay, delay, delay. You have, like, four episodes worth of story that you stretch out over ten episodes. Here, it felt as if they had uh, a solid episode's worth of story that they perfectly snugly fit into one full episode. It has, here's the key, people. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. I don't understand why uh, this seems to escape so many other of uh, these uh, live-action shows, especially when we get to the, the later seasons of live-action Star Trek uh, in this new era. But uh, I, I think this is a fantastic one here. I think this one will act as a cautionary tale, though, that if I'm really into the premiere of season three, I will be a little more cautious. <laughs> I, <laughs> just yeah, a little. <laughs> that's just it. You could have uh, the best premiere of Star Trek ever when we get Picard season three. It will uh, you know, make my spine tingle with your reappearance of you know, legacy character after legacy character. I am going to be skeptical AF over the... Uh, remaining nine episodes because I know they have a tendency to kind of do the fans wrong and I can there's no doubt going to be some sort of mystery element that uh, I'm not going to find very compelling that's just what they do with the live action series except for say Strange New Worlds uh, but I don't know I, I can still enjoy you know the Stargazer for what it is yeah it's a episode I would happily go back to and just stop after that episode <laughs> <laughs> that should have been the uh, finale of uh, Picard. It just yes, it's Q slapping Picard in the face, and that's it. That's right. That's my that's my series finale right there. <laughs> and and so the trial for humanity ends, Mon Capitan. <laughs> Credits. <laughs> and then the curb your enthusiasm music. <laughs> yes. What's your number six? <laughs> <laughs> My number six is Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad from Season 1 Discovery. Hell yeah. Harry Mudd yeah. really represented well on the uh, top 10 of new Trek lists. <laughs> um, who'd have thought? This one, we had the inter introduction of Harry Mudd in like a more serious episode a couple before. Um, and like that that episode was pretty solid. But like yeah, choose your pain. nothing really prepared. Yeah, choose your pain. Thank you. Nothing prepared me for this one, which was just such a fun take on you know the classic sort of high concept you know tng like episode that has the repeating timeline but what i really loved about this one was what a character building episode it was for burnham about kind of opening herself up to a romance with ash tyler you had fun stuff like the party that we kept going back to with the wyclef jean music I really love this episode. It's funny. I was thinking about when I was putting this list together, and I had a bad attitude initially where I was like, I can't be putting too many Star Trek Discovery episodes on my list. But then it was like I began to flash back to how much excitement we had covering those first two seasons. Even in episodes we didn't like, there was a genuine sense of excitement about what the next episode was going to bring, what was that season going to mean. And I really do think like those first two seasons, as inconsistent as they could be, they often delivered at least something worth talking about and getting kind of excited about. 
Well, this is the episode that uh, swept me off my feet when it came to Star Trek Discovery. I, to me, I was like, oh, they finally cracked the code, and it's only, you know, it took them only like seven episodes. It usually takes most Star Trek series, you know, like uh, two seasons. They did it after seven episodes. They've captured the spirit perfectly. They gave us, you know, one of those kind of typical Groundhog's Day, you know, cause and effect episodes uh, that we've seen before in Star Trek. They gave it a twist. They gave a, a fantastic antagonist here as well, uh, somebody obsessed with uh, wreaking revenge upon uh, one um, uh, Lorca. And also you just have like the kind of the fun elements with um, just even the ship design of the Baron, you know, and his costume. I'm like, it's such a total throwback to the TOS era. I'm just like, finally, you guys have figured it all out. I, I was so enamored with this episode. I, 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 I love this one to this day. I kind of wish that's where, you know, Discovery had, you know, stayed w- with tonally from there on out. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say this. I think the episode that followed, it may have been C.B. Pock and Parabellum, which was a little bit underwhelming, but the one after that was Into the Forest uh, We Go, which I thought was a rip-roaring adventure. And I, I think, you know, at, at that point, right before the mid-season finale of Star Trek Discovery, which was uh, the Forest episode, uh, well, C.B. Packham was a forest episode in which they're camping, but uh, I'm really talking about um, Into the Forest We Go. Um, I thought that Discovery had figured itself out. And so just that uh, excitement that I had for the show, it really, really manifested um, at, a, at a zenith when it came to um, uh, this episode, uh, the magic to make the Zenith man go mad. It feels like Discovery in seasons three and four became more of a blah show where it didn't have highs. And like you can say that there was some pretty low lows maybe in season one and two, but like it had highs and you just don't get moments or episodes like this now. Well, you're also, I remember the, the character of Stamets, like uh, episodes three through six as we knew him. Like I, like he's an entirely different character now, just fundamentally mm-hmm. not the same guy. Like he might make some snarky comments now or then, but nothing compared to what we're getting when the show started off. And then he kind of came around into more of the, uh, the, the groovy hippie sort of character that uh, we got in this one, where he was, he was the only one that could actually really figure out the time loop. This was a good, solid Stamets episode, in addition to being a, 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 an exceptional journey for Burnham, who was still aloof Burnham rather than the um, hyper-emotional Burnham that we have at this point, the, the one who's crying um, about three, maybe four times an episode, I think. Uh, I'm just doing the rough estimates for the average there. But um, it's just, they gave so many of the characters fun things to do. Even like fleshing uh, Ash Tyler out, who was still a bit of a cipher at that point. I think this may have been Ash Tyler. Actually, you know what? Um, I think Ash Tyler's high point in season one of Discovery is the wolf inside. But I think this was like a, a very close second. Yeah, no, I agree. Like Ash Tyler character that was pretty uh <laughs> not not the most uh well thought out character but he had some solid moments in season one so uh and this was being one of them yeah so my number six cam was calypso which we discussed in depth uh that was your number 10 uh why don't we hop over to your number five my number five is another discovery episode it's from season two it's if memory serves which right from the get-go with the previously on and having flashback footage to the cage it had me in the palm of its hand. And then to work in Vina, the return of the Talosians, I thought this episode was doing, again, like kind of what I want to see more from Star Trek Discovery. If you're not going to do fun stuff like they do in Magic, do stuff like this where you're delving into Star Trek mythology in a way that has that kind of like, you know, the seriousness we like out of Star Trek, but with the fun character stuff. And we had some great Pike material in this episode with his reunion with Vina. Um, 
just his um you know seeing his future and things like that it seemed like just to me an episode that had it all going we also got you know spock being cured by the telosians i love this episode plus major bonus points this is the one where ash tyler gets in the fight with hugh culber and we have saru being no no <laughs> let's see how this plays out one of the all-time great saru moments that, that's totally a uh, ben cisco move right you know you know you, you just gotta let uh quark and kira go at it and watch uh you know uh, kira kick his butt um camp that's right that's right this is uh, another instance in which I, I just don't know why Discovery has to feel obligated to be so tonally monolithic when you see that they can just jump out of the gate with the previously on Star Trek and you're having flashbacks to like images from the cage, the original pilot. And it's kind of that disco flavored, you know, uh, music that you're getting. I'm like, yes, thank you. Like you can switch back and forth even in a far more serialized series such as uh, Discovery and make it work for you. And and what they're really doing is they're not treading over old ground when it comes to the, the Pike and Venus stuff. They're actually kind of like opening our eyes into kind of a world that would exist between the events of the cage and the events of the menagerie. They are making the universe all that much bigger. And that's really what I wanted from Star Trek Discovery is take this era and show me what more there is to delve into, like really justify why this series takes place in this particular era, other than the fact that you want to name drop Spock, you know, you know whether it's his relation to a, a foster sister or having some sort of connection to one Captain Pike. And I, I think that this is one of the very few episodes of Discovery that really justified why it takes place here. I, to me, this is my high point, absolutely, for season two of Star Trek Discovery. Like. Season two Discovery has just as many, you know, plotting issues as you can point to in seasons, you know, three and four or one, where there's a lot of just, it gets very convoluted and there's a lot of question marks hanging over certain developments. But like, I feel like I can still go back and watch season two because of episodes like this. I know. And it's like, and it doesn't feel as if, okay, even like, I don't feel like I need to rewatch season two in its entirety just to put this one in you know, insert the Blu-ray disc into my Xbox, you know, like I, I think this one still stands on its own because again, this one has like a solid beginning, middle and end and, and it's tied into Spock's personal journey as well. What's going on with him emotionally. And I think this one is served very well by, you know, just giving your episodes kind of the ABC through line rather than just stretching things out over the course of a season. We, we talked about um, kind of the backlash about, uh, you know, these showrunners saying, I'm making a 10-hour movie. This just kind of proves that, that you don't need to make a 10-hour movie. You should be making television instead. Mm -hmm. And it, for one moment, the Star Trek Discovery was. <laughs> okay. Uh, Cameron, my number five is uh, Spock Amok. Uh, this was, you know, maybe a little bit of recency bias on my part, but uh, this was, I think, uh, Strange New Worlds having a grand old time. And it's not just like, hey, this is a fun episode uh, for Star Trek uh, Strange New Worlds. This is just kind of like a typical body swap episode done in the funnest way possible. And I think it is anchored by two incredible performances uh, from the, the actors behind Spock and uh, Tapa in this situation. In that, uh, or no, it's not Tapa. It's uh, to Pring, yes. Tapa is the, uh, the more elder... Stateswoman from uh, Spock 
amok, or no, it's amok time. I'm getting all my amoks mixed up with Spock. But uh, anyways, uh, this was just like, like I don't think this one would have worked had the actress playing to Pring was not as fantastic and just emulating kind of the Spock uh, uh, acting as she did there. And I think that the writers had to be very confident that you would have two actors to completely pull it off. And even just kind of the conceit of encountering an alien that's imitates other alien species when they're doing first contact to me this is what i really love seeing it's just like uh diplomacy within star trek and and you know we, we get to see like pike figuring that out and um what <laughs> watching like spock slash to pring trying to navigate these negotiations and then also spock slash to pring trying to navigate um kind of a a prisoner arrest you know and uh, how that's not necessarily handled in the uh the 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 most emotionally muted sort of way this is just a fun adventure kind of shore leave episode too i don't understand how like you know you look at audience scores for like strange new worlds where they are changing tones every week and like the scores are really high for diversion episodes like this and then an action episode the next week and then you look at like these ones that are more as you say monolithic in tone and their grades are pretty low across the board. Like, yeah. it's like, if one's not working, it drags them all down. It's like, Star Trek benefits from the diversity of storytelling. And an episode like Spock Amok, it's kind of like a, you know, when you're watching DS9 and you have, like, Take Me Out to the Hall Suite or something like that into a season let where... let he who is without sin. Another great, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it's those little, like, fun moments, those fun episodes. Captain's Holiday, another one, where it's like... They make us love our characters that much more. We get to we get to see them like kind of cut loose, and we get to watch the actors have fun. And um, when we talk about the worst, I have another episode about actors having fun. But for now, let's focus on the good because I think like this was an incredibly fun episode, and I'm hoping that in uh, you know the next season of um, you know Strange New Worlds, they can have another episode like this that's just just as much fun with a high concept. I just, I don't understand self-serious Star Trek uh, all the time. You know, like, there are episodes that are serious. You know, yesterday's Enterprise. You don't need to have Whoopi Goldberg mm-hmm. cracking wise, you know, throughout all of that. But when you can, you know, let loose, as everybody got to do in this one, look, even just Mabenga's, like, fishing hat, like, something as goofy like that, that just adds to kind of the uh, the, the spirit of the episode, too, and uh, creates kind of an atmosphere. We even get, like, Enterprise bingo you know, like there's yep. just everything about it is just like what a delightful entry point for somebody. If you just want to show them Strange New Worlds for the first time and say, "Hey, look, this could be kind of a fun version of Star Trek." This is maybe kind of a another kind of a sitcom-y episode, so to speak. But I like it when we just get to sit with the characters, and even those hangout episodes have a lot to reveal about them. And you know, TOS had a lot of like classic episodes like that. You could call um, Trouble with Tribbles one of those. Um, Shore Leave. And this one fit really well into that where, you know, like that's my favorite thing about TOS is the way it bounces around. So again, like I think that Strange New Worlds, it's like it made it look easy. I don't think it is as easy to pull off as many stories as they did in their first season, but I'm really encouraged just by how excited they seem for season two that we're going to have all sorts of other crazy adventures. I think this show could be really special. Um and so for my number four, I had no small parts. So we already talked about that. So what was your number four? My number four was If Memory Serves, which we just talked about. So why don't we, we're getting to the top three, Cam. What is your number three episode of New, uh, new Trek? My number three is Nepente 
from okay. season one, Picard. And this is a classic <laughs> episode that falls within a season I don't like very much. <laughs> where <laughs> this is about, you know, Picard bringing Soji to spend time with Riker and Troy. Soji, who factored into an arc I couldn't have cared less about in season one, Picard, when I, especially on the rewatch. Or made any sense of either. Yeah, that made no sense whatsoever. Um, but this episode was the type of character building that I loved and that you kind of highlighted with Stargazer. Where it's like, this is how you write an older Picard story. Where, you know, this one obviously features returning guest stars. But, like, the way that they look at Riker and Troy, it doesn't feel like they put those two actors in cosplay the way that, like, the Enterprise finale did. It feels like an evolution of those two characters. And I like watching them just sit down and talk to Picard the way that Troy, you know, basically slaps down Picard the way he is treating Soji. Yes. Or the way that Riker and Picard sit and just kind of talk about their lives. This is your show, people. This is what makes Picard special. And it, I don't understand why they're so terrified of embracing it. Well, it's like, this is the best material that, you know, uh, Troy has gotten since, you know, season seven of TNG with uh, Thine Own Self, uh, which is the episode in which uh, uh, Data the Iceman it loses his memory on that uh, primitive planet. And in the meantime, uh, Troy is trying to get her full commander pips and has to send holographic Geordi to his death. Uh, ever mm. since then, we got a string of movies in which she has nothing to do. I think they really rehabilitated, um, not rehabilitate the character, but they They've really kind of recharged and, and explained to the audience why she's such a fan favorite overall. And look, I, I I just feel like this is not a cheat episode in which, oh yeah, you just bring back some legacy characters and of course you're going to like it. Look, there's been like legacy characters brought back and they're kind of crummy um, roles. I mean, like the Q stuff was pretty bad. The Guinan stuff was pretty pretty bad seven the 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 seven the um the axe murderer all of a sudden um who's always fighting with her girlfriend pretty bad um the the troy and riker stuff like you said cam is an evolution for these characters this is yet another episode it had a clear beginning middle and end as you were following these characters uh following the the most of the show i'd say like 80 percent of this episode takes place on the uh, titular planet nepenthe here but just even those throw lines throwaway lines you know just like you know, I don't know, Riker burns the tomato on his, uh, on the pizza he's baking outside, you know, it's just like, <laughs> but, but there's also tragedy to these characters. And, and I, I don't like it that new Trek has to define every single character by tragedy, but, you know, just understanding that these, uh, that Troy and Riker and, uh, their, uh, daughter, uh, who I'm blanking on the name of, it, it's something like Kayla, it, it's whatever, um, Troy's, Kestra, Kestra? Kestra. that was, that yeah, it? Troy's yeah. forgotten about sister that's, um, that Loxana had kind of buried in her memory. Uh, that was, uh, yeah, uh, her namesake there. You know, th- there might be tragedy, but it's not as if those characters are defined solely by that tragedy, though. But it still informs who they are as characters. And, like, this is just, this is how you bring back, a char- uh, like, a legacy character and do them justice here. This is a fantastic episode, Cam. I, I, I don't think we ever moved off the point that th- this was kind of the best episode of season one of Picard. I think after it aired... I, 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 there's just no competition uh, when we were doing our rankings of episodes from that season. No. And I mean, it's like an episode that's introspective. It's mature. It's essentially what they promised Picard would be. And they failed to deliver across two seasons, except for really, I mean, you could say Stargazer and this episode. I, yeah, you know, which is like, it's pretty damning when, when you're talking about like 10% of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. 
So, uh, so your number three is Nepenthe. My number three is Quality of Mercy. Uh, that might just be recency bias, but I don't care. Um, it is a serious episode. We're talking about the finale, the uh, season one finale of Strange New Worlds, where, yes, serious episode, but you are having fun within the Star Trek universe in which you get a direct side quill to, and that's, you know, a side sequel, uh, you know, for uh, those in the know, to uh, Balance of Terror from the original series. It's a bit of a time travel episode going on here. Um, Pike is meeting his uh, admiral self, you know, far into the future. And you get, it, it, it's not just a time travel episode, but it's an alt reality episode too. And you're, you're following Pike's journey on like what it takes for him to really get over, again, an, another uh, tragedy defining moment in, in which he understands that uh, his life will be um, a life more of a debilitation in, you know, seven or eight years or so like that. And it leaves like a couple nuggets about maybe what's in store for season two as well. But just his recognition that Spock is is a profoundly important person that he needs to care for and nurture as well. I mean, that really, really worked for me. And I, I, I just... I. I get the sense that the Strange New Worlds writers get it, and they know that they should be doing more episodes like this and what you are working with in the framework of Star Trek, and you are not holding back any punches when it comes to, you know, kind of the, the, the character stuff either. Yeah, this is a fantastic episode. And I mean, the way they introduced Kirk, I thought worked really well. I'm actually really interested to see how they leap off of this with Kirk, because like, judging from the menagerie, you don't get the sense that Kirk and Pike have a particularly strong relationship it's more spock and pike so i'm interested to see how those two kind of operate together in you know the proper timeline as opposed to an alternate timeline here but nonetheless like i thought this episode just delivered everything this show is really good at um anson mount had an amazing showcase here this was like probably his first in terms of strange new worlds i'd say like maybe his first great character episode he had lots of amazing moments he had good episodes but i feel like this will be one that when we look back at pike we'll look back at this episode and highlight it as one of the important ones along the way um and i think you know we've talked about how don't drag things out more than you need to and i'm hopeful that the um, revelation he had at the discovery of you know if he tried to dodge his fate what could happen to spock that we can kind of push that into the background of the character now and focus on, you know, the future. Um, I think that is something that's encouraging because, you know, some of these other Star Trek shows like to drag stuff out forever. Well, uh, Cam, I, I'm really surprised that you don't think the child sacrifice episode uh, was uh, the, the, the <laughs> finest high point for uh, Pike so far in season one. <laughs> well, it was definitely his most uh, depressing moment. I'll give it that much, I suppose. Just throw it back with uh, some uh, whiskey and it's all good. Uh, and that's right. Uh, that is lift us where suffering cannot reach. Child sacrifice. Uh, FTW, right? Uh, yeah, no kidding. Uh, I mean, hopefully we don't have more of that in season two. <laughs> I'm good with the one, <laughs> letting that one just kind of exist on its own. I don't need a uh, sequel follow up. I, I think I'm good. Um, now, as for my number two, I have Memento Mori from uh, Season 1, Strange New Worlds, which is the Gorn Attack in Space episode. And this was, I think, the most edge-of-my-seat Star Trek episode I've seen in this new era, where I was just transfixed to everything that was going on. I loved the strategy and seeing Pike take part in this battle situation, and we had kind of those shades of balance of terror 
um, had more of that return to like um, submarine combat versus kind of the the you know Kelvin verse. I don't even know what to call it. It's more like Star Wars, I guess, kind of action. And just the way that like they delivered on the Gorn threat, as well as gave us a lot of insight into Laan's background through the mind meld with Spock and her backstory. I really love this episode. And as someone who's a big fan of the Gorn, I'm consistently like surprised by how dark the show has gone with the Gorn because I never really interpreted the Gorn as being this unbelievably terrifying and horrible. But um, I'm interested to see where they go with this. And this episode was, I think, my favorite Gorn story of the year. And I know there's another one that's highly rated on IMDb, but that one I was not quite as big on. It was a little too derivative for me. Yeah, you know, I, this one is a, a top three episode of Strange New Worlds for me in season one. I, for me, the, the the thing it has going against it, and I I, I judge not anybody uh, who really loves this one, it just felt a little derivative with regards to what we've seen before come in Star Trek. And it, it came at a point in the season where I, I kept asking myself, like, are they just doing homages to Star Trek nonstop? Are they just doing their own kind of karaoke version of what we've seen before? I don't think this is a bad episode. I, I actually think it, it it's a quite good episode, but it's one that I, I can't go all in on, but um, it'd be pretty boring if we agreed on all of our picks here. That's right. And, you know, it's so funny to me that, like, going into the season, I and I've said this before, but it's like, Laon was the character I was like, I don't know about this one. And that's like one of the characters I'm the most invested in by the end of the season. And I think an episode like this did a fair amount of heavy lifting just getting me there. You know, I, I think you're totally right there. Like just with regards to building that long character up and making her one of the breakouts of uh, season one. We discussed it uh, during the finale episode that we did the recap for. But, you know, like we're kind of expecting... You know, Spock, Pike, and uh, number one to be kind of the the three main characters here. I definitely think Laon has uh, over- overtaken Una as you know, uh, just just in terms of character development at this point in the show's run. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what they do with her going forward because I think there's a lot of potential to do all sorts of interesting things. We know what the end point is for like Chapel or Uhura. I really like what both those actresses are doing with those characters, but Laon sky's the limit and i'm really interested to see where they take that character okay so cam i'm going to do my number two and my number one back to back you'll know why in just a second and then you can reveal your number one but my number two was nepenthe which uh you ranked quite high as well my number one cam i kid you not uh i i you'll understand why but uh, magic to make the sanest man go mad wow. that to me is still kind of the high point in new trek in which i really feel as if they tapped what they're like really tapped spirit of star trek i'm viewing this in a vacuum i am taking it for what it is i'm not <laughs> i'm not trying to go beyond what would come after that and try to let that inform it uh what would happen i remember watching this episode and just the exhilaration that uh overflowed in me thinking oh they finally figured it out i think this is not only just a great way like kind of a great way to give homage to previous you know time loop time travel uh stories that we've seen before this is a fun episode. This is a fun time travel time loop episode in and of itself. It, it, just an adventure. Uh, it doesn't even have to be Star Trek related there. Uh, magic to make the sanest man go bad at my number one. Cam, what is your number one? My number one was Equality of Mercy from Strange New Worlds. And I did sit down. I'm like, is this just recency bias? But I don't think so. I, I really feel like this episode, I had kind of, I don't want to say lost hope, but like I'd kind of gotten a little pessimistic about the idea of a show kind of like ending in a way where I was just 
unbelievably excited for it to come back. And I think it's because I had the end of, you know, Picard seasons one and two. I had the ends of, um, you know, Discovery seasons three and four. Um, and so I was like really excited about lower decks. But in terms of live action Trek, I was just kind of feeling like, you know, when you watch those Marvel shows and they end and you're like, okay, that's kind of where I felt like with some of these re recent live action Star Treks. And this episode <laughs> delivered in a way where I was like desperate to see season two of Strange New Worlds. But it also took all the ingredients that were working so well in season one and just it was just like a focused, you know, propulsive blast of an episode where it had the philosophical Star Trek storytelling, incredible action, incredible character work. It was really what I look for in Star Trek and what gets me excited about it. So I'm just like really, really amped to see what they do in season two. And if this is like the beginning of things to come, then I mean, sign me up. Yeah, the, the only thing going against it is that my uh, I, I have high hopes for what's going to follow, and this is kind of the high watermark. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I hope they uh, they, they uh, bust my expectations moving forward. Cam, why don't we run through our top ten lists? Uh, why don't you uh, go through yours, and then I'll go through mine, and then uh, people can uh, keep track at home. Okay, so number ten was Calypso, the short trek. Number nine, Veritas from Lower Decks. Number eight, Such Sweet Sorrow, part two from season two, Discovery. Number seven, Cupid's Errant Arrow from season one, Lower Decks. Number six, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad from Discovery Season 1. Number five, If Memory Serves from Season 2 Discovery. Number four, No Small Parts, the finale of Season 1 Lower Decks. Number three, Nepente from Picard Season 1. Number two, Memento Mori from uh, Strange New Worlds. And A Quality of Mercy, the finale of Strange New Worlds Season 1. I've got number 10, No Small Parts from Star Trek Lower Decks Season 1. Escape Artist, uh, Season 1 of Short Treks. The Trouble with Edward, Season 2 of Short Treks. Number 7, I have The Stargazer from Season 2 of Picard. Number 6, I have Calypso, Season 1 of Short Treks. Number 5, I have Spock Amok, Season 1 of Strange New Worlds. Number 4, I have If Memory Serves, that is uh, Season 2 of Discovery. Number 3, I have Quality of Mercy, Season 1 of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Number 2, Nepenthe, Season 1 of Star Trek Picard. And number one, I've got Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. That is from season one of Star Trek Discovery. Cam, I, I like the fact that there is some diversity here. As much as we can complain about um, uh, Picard uh, or Discovery, which people who listen to our recaps, we do that. Um, they are very well represented here on our list, not as just kind of throwaway picks, but quite high up. Uh, I'll also point out that um, I, I've got like four episodes featuring Pike in here, whether we're talking Discovery, Short Treks, or Strange New Worlds, which is funny. And as you pointed out, I've got uh, I've got a lot of uh, hairy mud representation going on, which is not <laughs> something I would have expected had you asked me five years ago. The interesting thing that jumps out at me is that neither of us had any season two Lower Decks episodes. I just, like, so season two for me was, like, a lot of really good episodes. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily any um, excellent episodes that would necessarily crack the top ten. But I, I can give you, like, there's uh, some honorable mentions that I've got here on my list. Uh, I would say that, uh, oh, New Eden from Discovery season two was there. I also had Veritas and Crisis Point from Lower Decks, as well as Cupid's Errant Arrow. The one from Season 2 of just, uh, Lower Decks that might come close was uh, Wage Douge, that is uh, Klingon mm -hmm. for Three Ships. I also had that followed up by First First Contact. That's another honorable mention. I like Penance 
from uh, you know episode two of season two of Picard, and then uh, the Wolf Inside and Into the Forest I Go from Discovery season one. Those are my honorable mentions right there. I have pretty much a brand new top ten list for you. Right, yeah, my honorable mentions. I had Ephraim and Dot, the short track, the animated one that Michael Giacchino directed. I had Spock Amok from Strange New Worlds. I had uh, yeah, Wedge Douge, or however you pronounce it, Three Ships from um, Season 2 Lower Decks. I had Ix Cretus from um, Lower Decks Season 2, and um, Stargazer, and um, Into the Forest I Go. Okay, so Cam, I realize that we are one hour in, and we've only covered half of what we intended to <laughs> when it comes to uh, the best and worst of New Trek. We also wanted to cover, uh, of course, the uh, rankings of the seasons. I don't know, is this kind of our, our first ever cliffhanger episode of Subspace in, in which uh, we bring people back next week and, and we can uh, talk about those other topics, which I, I think there's a lot to mine there in terms of uh, conversation between you and I. Well, here's the question. Is this our best of both worlds or our, I don't know, workforce? <laughs> <laughs> Where it's uh, Chicote running off a balcony? Actually, you know what? Workforce is good and it's not a finale. That's a bad one to go to. Unimatrix Zero. That's the better okay. That's the okay. better choice. <laughs> there you go. We're we're dreaming. Yes, this is. Uh, pretend we're um we're Wayne and Garth doing the doo and this is all a dream. Okay, so yeah, we will see you next week where we will look at you know perhaps the worst of the uh, Kurtzman New Trek era as well as some season rankings. So look forward to that. Um, you can, of course, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, part one, I suppose, jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod and let us know your favorite episodes of the New Trek era. We'd like to hear them because I think, like, everyone likes to talk about the worst that New Trek offers. Uh, let us know what some of your favorites are, the ones that stick with you for the long term. And, of course, you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam Viazin Veritas is my number nine, Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N as in Nepenthe is my number two. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.